On Monday before his death, Jesus Christ curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. Mark chapter 11, from verse 20 to chapter 13, verse 37, records what happens on the Tuesday before his death. This is a very busy day. Christ is harassed by the chief priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees and Sadducees, all seeking to condemn him. And our Lord engages in an extensive teaching ministry. He explains the fig tree. He teaches in parables. He answers questions concerning paying taxes. What is the greatest commandment? The resurrection of the dead before a discourse on the signs of his coming. So I'd recommend for you sometime today or this week to read Mark chapter eleven twenty all the way to the end of chapter 13 and see how our Lord spent this busy day before his death. But having already considered the explanation of the fig tree, we now come to verses 27 to 33 as Christ's authority is disputed. And we'll look at this section in two simple headings. First of all, exposition. Second of all, application. What is this saying? And then how does it apply? What can we learn from the passage? So first of all, expositing Christ's authority debated. It says in verse 27 that Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. Now what was he doing walking? Matthew 21-23, the parallel account, says that when he was in the temple, he was teaching. And in Luke chapter 20 verse 1, it says, He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. There is no contradiction between Mark, Matthew and Luke. There's only harmony. Either Christ was teaching and preaching in one place of the temple to one group and then walking to another place and another group then teaching and preaching or he was teaching and preaching as he was walking. And if you know your Gospels, Jesus Christ often walked and taught at the same time, and this was very common in general in the ancient world. And this reminds us again and again and again the primary aspect of Jesus Christ's ministry. It was to preach and teach. We live in a day and age where people want to turn the church upside down and make the priority of the church social action, doing charity. 
and they make preaching and teaching a tiny, insignificant part of the Christian and church life? Is there a place for doing charitable things? Yes. Is there a place for practically loving the neighbour? Absolutely, of course. Just read James chapter 2. But what's the central? What's priority? It is preaching and teaching. In Luke chapter 1, sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus Christ has been healing and performing miracles. But it says, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. Why did you come, Jesus? Not for miracles and not for healings. I came forth to preach the word. The healings and the miracles were signposts of his preaching. But the central aspect of Christ's ministry was teaching the word and preaching the gospel. And this is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to chapter 4 picks up what's going to happen in the last days. And the last days started at the ascension of Christ. He says there's going to be error and apostasy and denial and wicked living in the church and outside the church. But do not fear. We have an anchor. One, we have the Holy Scriptures breathed out by God. And two, preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. And so any church that is biblical will do many things. Mercy ministry, charity, loving the neighbour. Yes. But the priority, the priority is preaching and teaching the Word of God. So let us individually, let us as a congregation, be Christ-like. And may we prioritise the preaching and teaching of his Word. But as Jesus Christ is walking and teaching, a certain group approaches him. Verse 27 says that there comes to him the chief priests, elders and scribes. The chief priests consist of the high priest, former high priests and prominent priests. The scribes consist of the official teachers of the law. The elders are men who are leaders of communities and synagogues. And altogether they make up the Sanhedrin, which was the highest judicial body of the Jews. And they have come to Jesus Christ with a question. Verse 28. 
By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? Authority is the right to do something. It is the right to exercise power. It is the right to give orders, to give commands, and to expect and demand submission and obedience. And this is a concept that's really dying out today. In the West, we are very individualistic. And we snort at the idea of authority. We don't like the word authority. We don't like when it's used in society. And if anyone comes to before us and they act like they have the right or the authority to tell us what to do or to demand our obedience, we rebel. Who are you to tell me what to say and think and do? I'll do what I want. I'll decide that is sinful and unbiblical. Because the Bible reveals that all of society is built on authoritative structures. Men and groups and spheres which have the right to command and demand obedience. For example, governments do. Romans 13 says that governments are ordained of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, it speaks of king and all who are in authority. They have their right to command. They have the right to demand submission. Now, we could speak much, much more about kingly authority, etc., etc. We don't have the time, but just simply know the fact God has given governments and governments have authority. And anyone who does not want governments to have authority is in rebellion against God himself. Life. All of life has ideas of authority. For example, in Luke chapter 7 verse 8, the centurion, so if you like a, a someone in the army, says, I am also a man under authority. So I know what it's like to have someone who has authority, a position, and that person has the right to rule me. That person has the right to command me to go here or to go there or to do that training or that training or go to that field or to go to that field. They have the right. And so in society. Those in management who are the boss have authority to command and make decisions and give orders and those under the boss have the duty to submit to the boss. In the family, there's authority as well. The husband alone has the authority and right to rule, lead, and be the head. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife. The wives are to be subject to their own husbands in everything. 
And so if a wife is ruling or leading or acting as head, they are going against God himself and they are not submitting to the lawful authority. And parents have the authority over their children. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Obey your parents in the Lord. We live in a day and age where the vast majority of so-called children's entertainment make parents to be these foolish beings, especially the father. And you know best. That goes against God and it goes against authority. Parents have authority over their children. And we as Christians must resist the world in tearing down authority structures. We must maintain them on a biblical level with all the biblical teaching that goes with what I said but cannot and do not have the time to expound upon. There is authority, there is rights of obedience and submission and we should lovingly, faithfully adhere to such things. But here this group are coming to Jesus, what right, what authority do you have in these things? What are these things? It includes many things. It includes what he's doing right here, right now in the context. He's walking around the temple, teaching the word of God and preaching the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, what authority, what right do you have to do that? It includes the cleansing of the temple. Jesus of Nazareth, what right, what authority do you have to overturn the tables, to stop people passing through the temple? What right do you have? It includes coming upon a donkey and riding into Jerusalem like a humble king and have all the people, blessed be the name of him who comes in the Lord. What right, what authority do you have to do these things? This question is both good and bad. It's a good question because the Bible is clear. No one has the right in and of themselves to engage in ministry. It must come from God. For example, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 4, a text that speaks of the priesthood. No man taketh this honour unto himself, but he that is called of God. Or, in the Old Testament, when you look at the passages of a prophet, you read Jeremiah chapter 1, or Ezekiel chapter 1, and Isaiah chapter 6, A prophet could not just stand, get up and start prophesying and teaching and preaching and so on. They must be called and commissioned by God himself. And therefore it's a good question. What right, what authority do you have to do what you're doing? But it's a bad question. 
This is not said in sincerity. I just simply want to be neutral and I want to know the truth. Please tell me, Jesus of Nazareth, by what right, by what authority are you doing these things? That's not what's going on. They know by what authority he's doing these things. They reject that authority and they're seeking for an excuse to charge him with blasphemy. Christ's ministry from the very beginning was crystal clear. His right, his authority does not come from man. It does not come from himself, but has come from the Father who sent him. For example, in John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30, where Jesus Christ comes and he says, The Father has sent me. And everything I do, I do not of myself, but from him. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that the Son has life in himself. The works that the Father does, I do the works of the Father. As the Father has resurrection power, I give resurrection power. As the Father is the judge of all things, he has granted that the Son judges all things. What is my right? What is my authority? Divine. God himself. I am God, I'm from God, and I've been sent from God. And when he went about the place, performing miracles, teaching and preaching, the people understood this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22. And he starts teaching. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And then he casts out a devil with divine power. And in verse 27, they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And these men, the Sanhedrin, they know from Christ's popular ministry, the authorities from God. But members of their own council are also aware. In John chapter 3 verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ by night. He is the teacher of Israel. He knows and uh, has relationships with all these chief priests and scribes and elders and the Sanhedrin. And look at the language of John 3, 2. Rabbi, we, not I, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. The Sanhedrin 
know the answer to their own question already. But they rebel against God. They refuse Christ's authority and they look for an excuse to condemn him. Read Mark 11 verse 18. The scribes and chief priests heard and sought how they might destroy him, kill him. And these same scribes, these same chief priests are the ones who are asking this question in craftiness. By what authority do you do these things? And if Jesus Christ says, God, gotcha, blasphemy, a charge against him. So how does Christ respond? Verse 29 to 30. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Christ is the wisdom of God. He's no fool. He's not going to fall for their trap. He's a holy being with holy wisdom. He's not controlled by emotion. He has no sin in him. And he answers wisely. Imagine that was us. We respond with an answer or respond with anger or respond with emotion. But not Christ here. He's wise. Are you someone who struggles with speech? When to say things and when not to say them. How to say things and how not to say them. Learn from Jesus Christ. Go read and study the principles of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Then go read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and see how Jesus Christ perfectly personifies them. In Proverbs, I can't remember if it's 15, where it says a soft word, a soft word, a gentle word, answers. And that which is an angry, destructive, potential volatile situation, it's gone away with. Or answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Do not answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. See Christ do it. Or, when you're silent and you don't answer anyone, casting pearls before swine. Christ is receiving a question That's a gotcha question. And he doesn't answer it with an answer. He answers it with a question. Wisdom. In Matthew 12, Pharisees are coming to them. They're angry. They want to arrest him. And it says in Matthew 12, Jesus Christ walked away from them. He didn't answer them. He didn't refute them. He didn't say you're unrighteous to them. He didn't defend himself. He simply walked away. When you read wisdom, 
the principles of speech wisdom, and then you go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see how Christ the Master does it, and then with Christ in you, do as he does. Follow his example, and you will be wise in speech too. And Christ's question is this, the baptism of John from heaven or from man? He's doing this because how they answer this question will reveal what they really believe about him. The baptism of John is not restricted to his water baptism, but is simply a summary term of his entire ministry, preaching, teaching and water baptism. And what was John's ministry all about? What was the source of John's baptism? John chapter 1 verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So it's from God. What was the purpose of John's ministry? Mark 1, 3, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So prepare the coming of Jehovah himself. How was he to do that? John 1, 7, The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So he's to bear witness of the one who comes so that everyone would believe in him. And who John the Baptist? Who is this one who is the Lord, who is the light, who everyone is to believe in him? John 1, 29, he looks to Jesus Christ, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John's ministry, is it from God himself, or was he an imposter and made it up himself from man? Now the Sanhedrin are in a corner. They say in verses 31 to 33, if we say he's from heaven... That means he has divine authority and we must believe John the Baptist and therefore believe Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord, is the light and we are to believe in him. But if we say he's from man, everyone knows that John the Baptist was a prophet and they'll be angry at us because we're denying a prophet from God. They don't want to believe in Jesus, they refuse and reject his authority But neither do they want to have the people go against them. And therefore the answer, we can't tell. We don't know. They lie. They lie. And because they refuse to answer, Jesus Christ in wisdom says nothing. I will not answer your question either. Now, what can we learn from this passage? Four lessons. First of all, Christ's authority. By good and necessary consequence, by Scripture interpreting Scripture, Jesus Christ's authority is divine. He is God. He's from God. He's sent 
from the Father to this world and everything he does and teaches and performs is God's authority himself. There's a wonderful picture of this in John chapter 1. He is the Word who was there in the beginning, who was there in eternity, who was with God and was God. Then verses 2 and 3, everything that was made was made by him. So he's the creator of all things, all stars, all galaxies, all everything. Human beings, chief priests, elders, scribes, you and me, creator of all things. He governs all things. For it says in John chapter 1, the life, that's Christ's life, in him was life and the life was the light of men. How do we live? How do we have our existence? How do we have our rational being? It is Jesus Christ who upholds everything, sustains and governs everything. And he is the only saviour of the world. He is the Lamb of God. And therefore, he has absolute authority and we are to believe in him. If John the Baptist's message is from heaven and it was, then we must believe in him and his message is that Jesus Christ is greater and we must believe in the Lord, the light, the saviour of mankind. Christ has all authority. He has the authority and the right to command us to believe things, to command us to do things, to command us to live our life exactly as he teaches. He has the authority and the right to demand our submission, our faith, our obedience. He has the authority to call us all to deny our own lives, to take up our cross and to follow him. He has absolute authority over governments and universities and the media and sexuality and finances and your spare time and your entertainment and your sports, your food and drink. And everything. He has absolute authority. And it is the duty of all rational creatures, therefore, to believe in him. Duty faith is a doctrine that we confess and believe that it is the obligation of every human being, reprobate and elect, to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Because all authority is his. He is God. He is Lord. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sins and to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. Which means there is no excuse for any man, woman or child. Everyone has the duty 
to believe in Jesus Christ because of his authority. And when the gospel comes and the information is given and all the facts are declared, we must confess Jesus as Lord. And though sinners rebel on the great day of judgment, Philippians chapter 2, 9 to 11 will be fulfilled and every human being who has ever existed will confess his authority overall. But secondly, unbelievers reject Christ's authority. This is a classic picture of the unregenerate, the unbeliever here. They know the information here. They they know that Jesus Christ is Lord. They know he has this authority and they refuse to submit. Now, why do they refuse to submit? Today, I think we go too quickly to the ability. They can't submit because they're totally depraved. Now, that's theologically true. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is very clear here. Verse 14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, that's the gospel of Christ, for they are foolishness unto him, Neither can he know them, cannot, cannot, no ability. That's true, but it's not the whole truth. Men refuse to accept the authority of Christ because they also will not. They are foolishness to him. Or John 3.19, this is the condemnation of the world that light came And the men, the darkness, rejected the light because their deeds were evil. Or to use the exact language of John chapter 3 verse 19, men loved darkness rather than light. Men do not want to be ruled by another. Men do not want to submit to another. Men do not want to have their life determined and controlled and guided by another. Man wants to be the God of his own world. And therefore when Jesus Christ comes in the gospel with his authority, the natural inclination of man is to deny Christ because if he believes in Christ... His entire life has to change and he doesn't want that to happen because he loves his sins. This is why you'll get men and women who'll be religious, may even read their Bible, they may even come to church and talk about church and talk about Jesus a lot. They may like his priesthood, they may love his prophetic ministry but when it comes to his kingship and denying themselves and loving him so much to live for him no because I like my own life my way I like my own sins and I'm not going to change for no one just like these scribes and elders and chief priests. Their entire belief system and life would have to change and therefore they refuse. Jaisi Ryo, the Anglican bishop, writing in his expository comments says, It is a melancholy fact 
that dishonestly like this is far from being uncommon among unconverted people. There are thousands who evade appeals to their conscience by answers which are not true. When pressed to attend to their souls, they say things which they know are not correct. They love the world and their own way, and like our Lord's enemies, are determined not to give them up. But like them also are ashamed to say the truth, and so they answer exhortations to repentance and decision by false excuses. One man pretends that he cannot understand the the gospel. Another assures that he really tries to serve God, but makes no progress. A third declares that he has every wish to serve Christ, but has no time. All these are often nothing better than miserable equivocations. As a general rule, they are as worthless as the chief priest's answer, we cannot tell. And that's the natural man. They will not accept Christ's authority because they love their sins more than Christ. But then thirdly, how does someone come to believe in the authority of Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? Are you truly a Christian? How do you really know you're a Christian? You believe, accept and live under the authority of Christ. As these men refused, the true believer says, as John the Baptist's message was from heaven and they believe in him and his message, we as true believers believe Jesus Christ's absolute authority. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. No man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, that's authority, but by the Holy Ghost. See, for the true believer, the Holy Spirit has been sent from Jesus Christ in heaven to him or her on earth. And whereas they had this rebellious, refusing spirit towards his authority, the spirit comes and cleanses our soul from the defilement of sin. The spirit of God places divine life, spiritual life into the soul. And then the spirit of God, under the reading and preaching of the word of God, move us to say, that's Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Lord. He has all authority and everything he says is true. And the Spirit of God gives us a beauty of this authority. You think of the authority of a king who commands and yields obedience. And then Psalm 45, when David is thinking of this king, is he a tyrant? Is he authoritarian? Is he strict and ugly and oppressive? No. This Lord Jesus, this king, this man of authority is fairer, more beautiful than all the sons of men. 
when he speaks and teaches and has doctrine, it's not the words of ugliness and tyranny, but of grace and truth. And the Spirit of God working in regeneration, now that person comes, is allured, attracted to the authority of Jesus Christ and the gospel, and believes. Romans 10.9 We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord. He has all authority and I believe and I submit to his gospel and that's salvation. You cannot have Jesus as saviour but not as Lord. He's one in the same person. He is saviour and is Lord. Carnal Christianity is a doctrine from devil himself. The devil himself that you can profess to be a Christian and not live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why there are so many thousands, if not millions, of false professions of faith in America. You can go to the Bible Belt, you can go to Southern Christianity, you can come up here to the North, as long as you see a prayer, as long as you are baptised, as long as you remember, as long as you have the name of Jesus, you can live as you want, demonic. But a true believer has the Spirit of God and says Jesus is Lord and therefore obeys. Think of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And then he says, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded. So how do you know you're a true believer? You observe all things I have commanded. That does not mean that you're sinless in your obedience, but it means you're sincere and evident in your obedience. You believe his word has all authority. You believe the Bible has all authority. Therefore, with faith, love and joy in your heart, you sincerely and evidently obey Christ's commandments through the Bible. What does he teach you about being a husband or a wife? Authority, you seek to live it. What does God teach you about living as a citizen in the world? You read it, it's authoritative, you do it. What does he teach us about sexual ethics and kindness and treating the poor and so on and so forth? All authority and therefore sincerely and evidently you obey him. And that's a Christian. Are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? Is the Spirit of God in your heart and you see the beauty of his authority and you believe in his authority and you live your life under his authority and you know this is a good authority then. You know you live the best life you can because Christ's in your life. And everything he does is for your good. It's better for your husband. It's better for your wife. It's better for your children. It's better for your neighbour. It's better for society because it's from God. If this is your saviour, if this is your Lord, 
if this is your testimony, be assured in your faith. Have joy in your faith. And continue to live faithfully and lovingly under the lordship and authority of your Saviour. Last application, teaching and authority. When you read John Calvin, David Dixon, J.C. Ryle, they all bring out a good and necessary consequence of the text. To teach the Bible, you must have authority. Here the debate is not, you don't need authority to teach, but rather the source of your authority. You must have authority to teach the Bible, but is that authority from God or from man? The baptism of John, who taught and preached, is it from heaven or from man? Jesus Christ, these things, walking, preaching and teaching, is it from God or from man? And the Bible teaches only men who are called by God and ordained by the church are to preach and teach the Bible. Romans 10, 16, 15, sorry. How shall they preach except they be sent? Have to be sent by Jesus Christ himself. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And when you are called by God and you're ordained by the church, you possess the keys of the kingdom, which is the authority to preach and teach the word. And therefore, no one else should be preaching and teaching God's word. It's not denying one-on-one fellowship teaching. It's not denying you're with three, four friends and everyone's talking about the inerrancy of the Bible and one person has more knowledge and is going to therefore informally teach them. We're not talking about that. that that's a fine. But publicly, to teach the word and preach the word is only for men. Why do I say that? This week I watched a documentary by a group called The Founders Ministry and about their concern about the Southern Baptist Church. Many, many errors are going on in that denomination. And one of the errors is the rise of women teachers and preachers. And of course, you don't go from complementarian, believing male-only preaching and teaching, to being a feminist like in a day and a night. It's gradual and the seeds are given first. And the seeds start like this. The woman's not preaching, she's only teaching. The woman's not teaching in a pulpit, but at a conference. Oh, she's not expounding doctrine. She's just applying the Bible and the biblical worldview to history and culture and sociology. Oh, oh, she's not preaching. That's how it starts. And then it increases and grows to the women want to be preachers on the Lord's Day. Take Beth Moore, for example. For years she confessed, I'm a complementarian. I believe male-only eldership. I believe in male-only preachers. But she would teach and not preach. Conferences and not the Sabbath day. I'm teaching women or teaching children or I'm only teaching a biblical worldview. 
And what's she done? She's left the Southern Baptist Convention, denied complementarianism, and is a full feminist believing in women preachers. See the seeds? And the Bible is clear. 1 Timothy chapter 2.12 I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. This is growing in reformed, conservative, confessional churches. Remember, it's just the seeds. A woman writes a book teaching the Bible or teaching the doctrines to Christians in general. A woman starts to be invited and she's teaching, not preaching, at Christian conferences. A woman's not expounding doctrine. She's only given a biblical perspective or a biblical worldview to historical, cultural and sociological matters. She's intelligent. Why can't she teach at a seminary? See the seeds? And these are very much alive and well in reformed Christianity. We might deny critical race theory, but critical theory is alive and well. And how do you know it? You allow women to write books for all Christian on the Bible and doctrine. How do you know critical theory is alive and well? You invite women to teach at conferences from a biblical worldview or perspective. How can you teach from a biblical perspective or worldview without expounding what the Bible says? So on and so forth. We must say black and white here and now the woman has no right. No authority to teach and preach the Bible. Not in the church, not at conferences, not in seminaries. God has ordained not all men. Not all men should be preaching at conferences. Not all men should be in the pulpit. Not all men should be teaching in seminaries. Called and ordained men. Only. No lay preachers in the pulpit. No lay preachers in conferences. No lay preachers in seminaries. If someone's going to come and teach the Bible, this is the context, teaching the Bible, they must have the authority which comes from God himself through the church and possesses the keys of the kingdom. Let us reject the rise of critical theory and feminism in the confessional, conservative, reformed church. Those who possess the keys of the kingdom alone, men ordained, called, are to be preaching God's word on the Sabbath day. Men alone should be teaching the Bible or the Bible's teaching or the Bible's worldview or the Bible's perspective on any historical, cultural or sociological perspective. And men with the keys of the kingdom alone should be teaching the Bible at seminary. Women can teach. Titus 2. Women can teach other women how to love their husbands and raise up children. That's the only right and authority the woman has in teaching in a more general sphere. 
But when we do have preaching and teaching by a man called by God, ordained in the church and possessing the keys of the kingdom, that means when that man speaks and it's consistent with the Bible, it's the very word of God himself. Which means the message of love and grace and good news and all of God's promises are coming to you from Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5, ordained men possessing the keys of the kingdom are ambassadors. So when that man stands up and says Christ loves you with an everlasting love, it's Christ himself. When that man stands up and says, I have showered you with infinite grace, it's Christ himself. Or when that man says, you need to repent from this particular kind of sin, it's Christ himself. Or when Christ comes and says, I've given you all things pertaining unto life and godliness, therefore follow me. It's Christ himself. So by whose authority is Christ? Divine authority. Let us all believe, submit, and follow to it. Let us pray.